The Lord be with you. Am I broadcasting back there, folks? Okay. You can't hear me. Okay. Now you can hear me. Very good. Well, let us pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we took a brief break last week from our study of the Gospel of John uh, to talk about the situation in the Middle East, but today we are returning to our study of God's Word. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to take them and open them up to John chapter 7, beginning at verse 32. If you don't have your Bibles and you don't want me to keep reminding you, just start bringing them. I mean, that's the easy way to handle it. But John chapter 7, verse 32, and we're going to go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these things, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but... No one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have, you, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? See, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, just to remind you of the context, what's going on here in the seventh chapter of John, you'll recall that Jesus had gone up to the festival, to the feast that was taking place in Jerusalem. It was a very specific feast at this particular point in time, there was a trio of feasts, all of which were very important to the Jews. And for one reason or another, my slide won't advance. Three very important feasts. 
Now, the most important, of course, was the Feast of Passover. Uh, that, of course, was the commemoration of God's deliverance of His people out of their bondage in Egypt when the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt and passed over those houses that had the blood on the doorpost. So that feast was a reminder to them of what God had done. And it was a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death, although the people, of course, didn't understand that. And as you all know, Jesus would be crucified at the time of the Passover, which helps us to understand what this particular feast was. It was the Feast of Booze. We'll get to that in a moment. The second great feast that the Jews celebrated was the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is not just a Christian celebration. It was a day when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the apostles, but it was actually a Jewish feast. And we're told that there were all sorts of people from all over the world that had gathered in Jerusalem for that. Pentecost for the Jews was basically a first fruits ceremony. It was the first of the harvest fruits. It was not the main harvest, as we're going to see, but it was the first of those, and it was an important celebration. Now, when I say that these were compulsory festivals, what that means is that any Jew who, at least a male, living within 15 miles of Jerusalem, was required to go to the city for these. It was mandatory. But what we'll see is that many people came, even those who lived far afield of Jerusalem, traveled great distances to partake of these celebrations. The final feast is the one that we're talking about here in John chapter 7, and that is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, and it took place in mid-October. We know that's the feast that's being celebrated here because the gospel goes on to say that in a short time Jesus is going to be back in Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. So this is the feast that immediately precedes this. And it was a celebration that really was designed to commemorate two things. First of all, it was a reminder to the Jews of God's provision for them when he had led them out of Egypt into the wilderness. You'll recall that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They were itinerant. They did not have a home. They were looking forward to a home. They were looking forward to the land that God had promised them, but they had not yet possessed it. And so they had no permanent dwelling places. They, they dwelt in tents, in booths, in makeshift shacks all during those years. And this was one of the things that the Feast of Tabernacles was all about. Jews would travel to Jerusalem, and they were not allowed to live in permanent dwellings. Even if you lived in Jerusalem and you had a permanent dwelling, you would come out of your permanent dwelling into your garden or wherever it was, and you would build a small makeshift shelter. And you would live in that for the duration of the feast. Some Jews, very orthodox Jews, still do that today. Now, initially, and this is told in Leviticus chapter 23, where it is established as a feast, originally it was only a seven-day feast. By the time you get to Jesus' day, uh, the celebrations have become very elaborate, and they have extended it an extra day. So it's an eight-day feast by the time of Jesus. But initially, it was a seven-day feast, and it involved these makeshift buildings. A reminder to them that God had provided them with a land, but... Until they possessed it, they wandered around in the wilderness, but God nevertheless provided for them. So that's what this festival was designed to commemorate. It was also a harvest festival. It took place, as you can see on the screen, in mid-October, normally around October the 15th, according to our calendar today. And this was the great ingathering. This was the great harvest festival. Uh, it's not fair to really say that it's like our Thanksgiving 
but it's akin to that, all right? It was when you brought in the, the, the great harvest at the end of the year, and it was a very exciting affair. Everybody went. In fact, if you could, you made it to Pentecost, to that celebration in Jerusalem, um, if you were traveling from afar. Most people really made the effort to get there for Passover because that was when you had the sacrifice of the lambs. But everybody also made an earnest effort to get to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths because it really was a time of great celebration. It was a great a time of great celebration, not a time of mourning or a time of confession, but a time of great festivities. Now, this was the feast that Jesus attended, but you'll recall at the beginning of this chapter that Jesus had been reluctant to go to this festival. His popularity had been waning up there in Galilee. He had been performing all of those miracles, feeding the 5,000 and so forth, and everybody was enthralled with him until he began to teach them, until they began to hear the implications of his sermons, and then all of a sudden people began to lose interest. For example, following the feeding of the 5,000, the people followed Jesus to the other side of the lake, and you'll recall that on that particular occasion, um, Jesus said to them, I know why you're looking for me. He said, you're not looking for me because you know that I can give you something spiritual. You're looking for me because I fed you in the fish of the loaves. You were satisfied physically, but don't work for that food that is going to perish, that's only going to satisfy you for a time. Instead, search for that food that only I can give you and will satisfy you for all eternity, for I am the bread of life. And we're told that when the people heard that, they were offended by that. They said, who does this man think he is? This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And we're told that many of his disciples, that is to say many of his followers, turned back and followed him no more. So Jesus' popularity, which had been so great up there in Galilee, with thousands of people following him, had started to wane. So when this festival comes, and all of the festivals had to be celebrated, as I said, in Jerusalem, Jesus' family and his disciples were preparing to go to Jerusalem for the festival, as so many Jews did. And they encouraged the Lord to go as well. But they had an agenda. And their agenda was that Jesus could go down there and do the miracles that he'd been doing up there in Galilee, and his popularity would immediately rise. And so that's what they were encouraging him to do. But of course, Jesus knew that his time had not yet come to be revealed as the Messiah. Moreover, he was not the kind of Messiah that they had anticipated. He hadn't come to be some sort of political or military leader who was going to drive out the Romans. He had come to be the Messiah to save them from the thing that really oppressed them, and that was sin. But of course, the people were not yet prepared to accept that. And so Jesus said to them, well, you can go to the festival, but my time to go to the festival has not yet come. So they didn't think Jesus was going at all. So they went off to the festival, and what we're told is that a short time later, Jesus went up incognito. He went up quietly. But apparently, John tells us that as the festival wore on, day after day, all of these festivities, eventually Jesus showed up. Now, even before he showed up, just the appearance of his disciples was enough to get the rumors flowing. Uh, there was a great deal of conversation about Jesus. Everybody had heard what he had done up there, how he could open the eyes of the blind and cleanse lepers and feed people with five loaves of bread and two small fish, a great multitude. And so there were lots of conversations about Jesus. 
And there was a division among the people. Some said that he was the Messiah. Some said that he wasn't. But the question arose, could any man do more than this man has done? In other words, if the Messiah finally shows up, is he going to be able to do more than this man has done? And so, as I said, there was this great division in the crowd there in Jerusalem as to who Jesus really was and what he was all about. And what really troubled the people was the fact that they knew that the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were opposed to Jesus, and yet they didn't seem to want to lay a hand on Jesus. And so that sparked another question in the minds of the people. Have they concluded finally that he is the Messiah? What's going on here? Now, as you saw in the section that we read just a moment ago, it was by no means a case where the religious leaders had concluded that Jesus was the Messiah. They were fearful of laying their hands on Jesus because he was so popular with the crowds. But finally, we're told that they did send guards to arrest Jesus. And I just love this scene. Uh, the guards go to arrest Jesus, and as they're approaching, they can hear apparently Jesus talking. He had been quiet for much of the festival, but as it wore on, he begins to come out, he begins to teach, he begins to preach. And we're going to see he does this because he realizes that the window of opportunity is closing. And so he's preaching and he's teaching. When the guards get there, they stop before arresting him to see what he's saying. And like everyone else, they're awed by what he says. They eventually go back to their commanders and the commanders, or those who sent him rather, uh, namely the, the Sanhedrin, the scribes and the Pharisees say, well, where is he? Well, we don't have him. What do you mean you don't have him? Well, have you heard this guy? I mean, nobody talks like this guy. You know, that in and of itself tells us that Jesus had an authority. I've said to you before, and it's very important, especially as we move toward the end of the story of Jesus' life on earth, and we're getting there in the Gospel of John, it's important for us to remember that the death of Jesus Christ was not some messy or tragic accident. Jesus Christ was in charge of his life, or at least the Father was in charge of his life from start to finish. That's why that phrase, the hour, the hour, the hour, is repeated over and over again in the Gospel of John. Jesus' hour had not yet come, or his time had not yet come. His moment had not yet come. It's because... God was in charge of Jesus' life, and his life was not going to be forfeit until God determined that it would be so. So that is the situation. Some believed, but some did not. There was this intense opposition. But as I said, as the days wore on, Jesus recognized that his opportunity to reach these people, the window of opportunity was beginning to close. He had been quiet for the first part of the feast, but now the feast is drawing to a close, and it is the eighth day. It's the last day of the feast, and the last day of the Feast of Booths was a glorious celebration, and it was accompanied by some rather magnificent festivities. And one of the most impressive, the final ceremony, was when the priests would leave the temple complex and they would go outside the city walls to the Pool of Siloam, where Jesus actually sent a man that he healed on one occasion. And they would go out to the Pool of Siloam with these golden ewers, these, these great 
pitchers, and they would dip it down into the pool of Siloam and bring the water, and then they would come back up to the temple. They would march around the altar seven times, representing the fact that the people of Israel had marched around the city of Jericho seven times and blown their trumpets, and the walls had come down. All of this, you see, to commemorate the wilderness wanderings and the possession of the land of Canaan. And then they would pour out this water from these golden ewers onto the altar as a sign of cleansing as a sign of offering unto the Lord. It was very impressive, and people would be there, and everybody would be looking, and some of them would be holding palm branches. It was a very impressive ceremony, and it's against that background, with that water being poured out, that Jesus says these words. Look, verse 37. And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. What a powerful image, that water, all those golden ewers with that water being poured out on the altar. And Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus issues against this background, this final day, this most magnificent invitation. As I said, it was an urgent invitation. It was an urgent invitation because Jesus knew that many of the people who had gathered there in Jerusalem were going to be scattered the next day. The festival was going to conclude and they were going to be going back home. But I think it was a particularly urgent invitation, not just for that reason, but because Jesus knew that his own life was drawing to a close. Passover was only six months away. That is the last Passover that Jesus would celebrate with his disciples. So within six months of the events that we're talking about here in John chapter 7, Jesus is going to be betrayed, arrested, condemned and crucified. And so he feels this sense of urgency. Now you're thinking to yourself, well, we're only in John chapter 7. And, and you look and you see, my goodness, this, chapter, this, this gospel goes on for, for, you know, till chapter 21. There's 14 chapters to go and the way he's going, we're going to be here forever. So how in the world can this just be six months away? I guarantee you we're not going to finish this in six months, so just rest assured. Well, this goes to show us something that's really unique about the Gospel of John, and that is fully half of the Gospel of John is given over to just the last week of Jesus' life, which tells us that those are the most important days in Jesus' life. So there's only six months left and Jesus knows that, and so he issues this invitation. And as I said, it's an urgent invitation. Jesus had issued other invitations over the course of his ministry. He did it time and time again in the way that some preachers issue an altar call every single Sunday, an opportunity for people to respond. And Jesus had done that. Matthew chapter 11, for example, he said, Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Well, those are the words of the comfortable words that we, we say every Sunday. It was a great invitation by Jesus. Anybody that is feeling heavy laden, weighed down by the cares, occupations, concerns of this life, come to me, Jesus says. 
In John chapter 6, just a chapter earlier, Jesus talks about people who are hungry. He says, if you're hungry, come to me. Whoever believes in me, whoever feeds on me shall never hunger again, for I am the bread of life. But I think this invitation is even more powerful. Not only because of the timing of the invitation, but because of the image that Jesus uses here. It's not just an invitation to those who are heavy laden and burdened by the cares of this life. It's not just for those who are hungering. Jesus uses the image of thirsting as that water is being poured out. You understand that this part of the world is a barren and desolate place. Those of you who have been to Israel, uh, the greatest river in all of Israel is the Jordan River. How many of you have seen the Jordan River? It hardly compares to the Ashley and the Cooper. I've got to be honest with you. It doesn't look like much more than a sluggish stream in places, to be perfectly honest with you. And yet that is the greatest river in all of Israel. And it feeds this entire land, this dry and otherwise barren land. So water was a precious commodity. When you talk to people in that culture, in that day, about thirsting, let me tell you, they knew what that was like. Their land was parched, and oftentimes in that dusty place, they were parched as well. You know, 60% of our bodies, I had to look this up, but I thought this was fascinating. 60% of our bodies are made up of water. That's an amazing thing. You can survive, some estimates say, depending upon the person, two to three months without food. Now, some of us could probably go longer than that, depending upon, but two to three months without food. But you know, the average person cannot survive more than two to three days without water. Two to three days without water. When Jesus says, if you're thirsty, if you're in danger of perishing, he's saying, you need to come to me. One of the other things that I find very interesting about this invitation, not only is the language powerful, not only is the timing significant, but it's the nature of the invitation. Look at how Jesus puts it on the last day of the feast the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This was a Jewish festival, but many people would have showed up for a festival like this. It would have been Jews from all over the place, from Jerusalem and just the outskirts of Jerusalem. But as I said, some Jews traveled great distances. Jesus' family had traveled all the way from Galilee in the north. But Jews, even of the diaspora, Jews who'd been dispersed to other parts of the Roman Empire, would also come for a festival like this. Now keep your finger there in John for just a moment and flip over, for example, to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 2, which is the description of the Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. This gives you a taste of the kind of people who would have shown up for a festival like this. 
Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then it lists the people. Look at where they came from. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrenia, and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and what? Proselytes. That is Greeks, Gentiles who were interested, who were converts to the faith, Cretans and Arabians. You had people come up for that festival from all over the place. The same would have been true for this festival. Is there anybody out there thirsting, who feels as though you're parched and ready to die, anyone at all, you can come to me. Anyone. Lord's invitation is not just confined to a particular group or a particular sect or a particular nation. It is an invitation that is as wide as the world itself. And the other thing that I notice about this particular invitation is that Jesus doesn't say, if you're thirsty for this thing or that thing. He says, if you're thirsty. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, he had issued an invitation, but it was a little different than that. He says, anybody that hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Well, there are lots of people out there in the world who are not hungering for righteousness. But that's who Jesus was talking to earlier in the Gospel of Matthew. But on this particular occasion, what does he say? He says, anyone who is thirsty. Thirsty for what? Just thirsty. Just thirsty. You know, we're all thirsting for something. Every single person here in this room today, you are thirsting for something. There's, there's something missing in your life, and, and, and you want it. You're thirsting for it. Now, some of you found it. But there are a great many people in the world who haven't. It's like that old U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. There's, there's just something missing. Yes, many people today, what are they searching for? And they'll say, well, I'm searching for pleasure. That's what you get in an affluent society like ours. Let's be honest, in this entertainment culture, what many people are looking for in this sex-obsessed culture is they are looking for pleasure. Jesus says, are you thirsty for pleasure? He says, well, then come to me. You say, well, I'm not looking for that kind of pleasure. And Jesus says, that's all right. You're looking for pleasure. You're thirsting for pleasure. Come to me. Psalm 16 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You're looking for pleasure, and you're looking in all the wrong places. You still haven't found what you're looking for. Then Jesus says, you come to me. You come to me. What do I have to do in order? You just come to me, and I'll supply the pleasure you need. You're thirsting for wealth? 
You're going to hear a sermon about that, by the way, today. I'm not the preacher, but Bill is. He's going to lay it on you. So just go ahead. We'll put a, uh, just lay your wallets and pocketbooks right up here on this table as you leave, and, and we'll get it over with right now. But that's what our culture thirsts for. Let's be honest, when you see a wealthy individual, somebody who has a big house or has been very successful in business, that's how we describe them, in fact. We say they're successful, and their success is based upon what? Their bank account or their stock portfolio. That's how we judge success in the world. And that's what many people are thirsting for. Somebody once asked... Henry Ford, how much money would be enough? And he said, just a little bit more. <laughs> You're thirsting for wealth? Paul, writing to the Romans, said, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Jesus said, You're looking for wealth? You're looking for riches beyond measure. He says, you come to me. You can have a pile of money. But if you're looking for real wealth, Jesus says, you come to me if you're thirsting for that. Some people are thirsting for family, to be included, to have a company I had a woman that served in my last parish. She was a lovely lady, and uh, she was a psychologist, a counselor. She had a degree from Emory. She was a remarkable woman in many ways, but I remember sitting down with her one day. She came to see me, and she said, you know, I'm really struggling. I am so alone. She said, I'm surrounded by people on a daily basis, but I'm that person who's in a room full of people and feels like I'm the only one there. Is there anybody out there that can relate to that? That even a room full of people, you feel as though you're entirely alone? There is no worse feeling in the world, I think, for human beings than to be alone. You'll recall that when God created the world, there are all those successive acts of creation, and God looks at each successive act, and he says, it is good, it is good, it is good, until he gets to one point where God looks on what he has made, and he says, this is not good. He said, it's not good for man to be alone. You're looking for fellowship. You're looking for community. The book of Proverbs says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus says, you're thirsting for companionship for a family. You, you come to me. Some people are thirsting for contentment out there in the world. There's just an unsettledness in their spirit. They just... Nothing seems to be right. Everybody else looks at them and their life looks as though it's been carved out of cream cheese. Everything's perfect. They've got the home. They've got the car. They've got the boat. They've got the career. They've got the spouse. They've got the children. And yet somehow something is missing. There's just no contentment. Jesus in John chapter 14 says, My peace I live with you. I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You're looking for peace. You're looking for contentment. Jesus says, you come to me. You're looking for wealth. Jesus says, you come to me. You're looking for pleasure. Jesus says, you come to me. You're looking for companionship, for a family, for community. He says, you come to me. 
Whatever it is that you're thirsting for today, Jesus is offering this invitation and he's saying, you come to me and I'll satisfy your desires. Now, he may not satisfy it in the way that you anticipate. But the invitation is extraordinary because it's open to every single one of us. And he promises that he will satisfy that desire, that thirst within us beyond our wild imaginations. Whatever it is, your thirst may be different than my thirst, but Jesus says, I am the only one who is able to quench it. That's an extraordinary invitation, isn't it? Now, that's an invitation. But as with all invitations, you can take it or leave it. So if you have a thirst in your life and you want that thirst to be quenched and you've discovered that nothing in this life can possibly quench that thirst or you're still continuing to look for love in all the wrong places and you still haven't found what you're looking for, then there are two things that you have to do today. The first is that you've got to come. Look at how Jesus puts this. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Listen, you're going to remain thirsty for the rest of your lives until you come to Jesus Christ. I promise you that. You're going to die of thirst unless you come to Jesus Christ. Now, Earlier in this gospel, in fact, just the chapter earlier when Jesus talks about being the bread of life, we talked about coming to him. Again, as I said, this is an invitation that he issues on any number of occasions. And we said on that occasion, how can I come to Christ? When should I come to Christ? And we gave some answers. You can come to Christ just as you are. He says, if anyone will come to me. He didn't say, once you get your life together, once you get your act sorted, then you can come to me. As the old hymn says, just as I am. You may come to Christ just as you are right now. You may come when you're old. You may come when you're young. You may come when you're middle-aged. Better to come when you're young and not put it off. Because none of us knows what the future holds. Furthermore, to be able to enjoy Christ for the length of your life is a whole lot better than at the very end of your life. So better to come when you're young, but better late than never. You may come to Christ when you're old, when you're young. You may come to him limping. You may be one of those wounded individuals. Life is really beating you up. You can come to Christ limping. You may come to Christ running with enthusiasm. You may come to Christ halting and doubting like the Apostle Paul or C.S. Lewis seemingly dragged into the kingdom of God. But the invitation has been issued to satisfy your thirst, but there is one thing that must take place. You must come. And really, it's not just one thing that you must do. Jesus actually says there are two things you must do. You must come, he says. You must also drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, what does it mean to drink? Well, you understand that to drink water is not something that you do once. You do it continuously. We are told that we need to keep what? Hydrated. 
You see people with water bottles everywhere you turn these days. And it becomes more important as you get older because oftentimes you don't feel your need for water. So you have to continually hydrate. When Jesus says, come to me, that may be a one-time event. You come to Christ, you give your life. But if you're going to be satisfied, if your thirst is going to be quenched, you need to drink from him on a daily basis. That's why I say, how about your Bibles? Are you bringing them? And when you do bring them, praise the Lord when you do. And as I said, we've been taking roll. So, <laughs> but when you bring them, is that the first time that you've touched it since last Sunday or last Thursday? Look, this is not meant to make anybody feel guilty. It's not. I, I'm, I'm not interested in guilt. But if you're thirsty, you need to go and you need to drink. And it's something that you need to do on a daily basis. The more you drink from the wellspring of Jesus Christ, the more satisfied you will become. You'll find in him more and more pleasure. You'll find in him more and more fellowship. You'll find in him more and more satisfaction. But you must come to him and you must drink. It's not enough merely to come. That's what many people think. Well, I've come to Christ. I've walked the aisle during just as I am when every head was bowed and every eye was closed. I came down in a Billy Graham crusade. I gave my life to Christ. That's fine. But you're still thirsting? It's because you're not drinking from him. You know the old expression, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Both of those are required. Now, what happens when we come and we drink? Well, obviously, we are satisfied. That's the promise that Jesus makes. Come to me, feed on me, and be satisfied. But part of that satisfaction is this. God's going to give you a purpose. You know, most people are unsatisfied in this life, or many people are unsatisfied in this life because they don't feel as though they have any real value, any real purpose. Many people spend billions of dollars. The average American um, spends dollars, much money. Americans and, and Europeans spend, I can't calculate the amount of money going to psychologists and psychiatrists, both of whom are very legitimate and necessary, but sometimes they're going trying to figure out who they are and why they're here. What's their raison d'etre? What's their purpose for being? Because if they don't feel that they have purpose, they don't feel as though they have value. But what Jesus promises is that if you come and you drink from him, he's not only going to satisfy your thirst, he's going to give you purpose and value. Look at what he puts here. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, Jesus says, you're thirsty for something, you come to me. You drink on me daily, and I will satisfy whatever it is that you're longing for. I'll satisfy your longing for pleasure. I'll satisfy your longing for community. I'll satisfy your longing for contentment. I'll satisfy your longing for fellowship. Whatever it is, you come to me and drink on me, and I'll satisfy it. And plus, I will cause the water that is welling up inside of you to become a river that flows out into the rest of the world. 
That's exactly what he did with the woman at the well. Do you remember the woman at the well? Jesus was sitting there at the well in Samaria, and the woman came around. You know that she was a somewhat notorious woman, a soiled dove, we'll say. She came out in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, and Jesus asked her for a drink, and she said, why should you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And Jesus said, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd be asking him for a drink. And he would give you springs of living water. And she said, how can you give me this water? Where do you get this water? You don't even have a bucket from which to draw. And Jesus said, I am that living water. And he proceeded to tell her everything that she'd ever done. That could be a painful experience, can it? The one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. And he just bore her, just opened her life before her. Bared everything for her to see. And she said, sir, I can see you're a prophet. And he said, oh, I'm more than a prophet. I'm what you've been thirsting for your whole life. And you remember how the story ends? We're told that she dropped her bucket and went back into the town to the very people she was trying to avoid. And she said, come, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. I believe he's the Messiah, the Savior, not just of the Jews, but of the Samaritans. I think he's the Savior of the world. And we're told that that whole community came out and they believed. And they believed because of the testimony of the woman. Jesus placed within her a well that welled up to eternal life and became a river that satisfied the thirsty souls around her. And I want you to understand that's what God wants to do with you and me. That's the nature of this invitation here in John chapter 7. It's not just to satisfy you, but to use you as the means by which Christ can satisfy thousands of others. I just want you to pause and ask yourself this question. How different would this community be? How different would Charleston be if we, thirsty people, came to Jesus Christ and gave our lives to him and drank from his abundance daily. And the well of eternal life that he places within us were to become a river flowing out into this community. Look at around you, how many people are in this room today? What would that be like? A mere trickle would become a flood, my friends. And it would change this city, it would change this state, it would change this country, it would change this world. That's what Jesus did with 12 men. And their lives became a flood that washed over the entire Roman Empire. What God couldn't do with us. Charles Haddon Spurgeon had a wonderful illustration of this. He talked about the great barges that used to cram the River Thames in the 19th century. These were huge flat bottom barges. And the Thames is a tidal river. And when the tide was out, he said those barges would be absolutely stuck in the mud. He said nothing could move them. No number of men could move them. No amount of machinery could move them. Nothing. They were stuck fast. 
He said, but the moment that the tide came in and began to rise, all of a sudden these barges began to rise as well. And when the tide was full, he said, even a little child could come along and just push that barge out into the river. What would it be like if we were to drink from Jesus Christ daily as the people of St. Philip's and allow the trickle within our own lives to become a river, to become a flood, to fill this city so that parched and thirsty souls would themselves be satisfied. If you'd like to see that happen, Jesus says, this invitation is for you, it's for anyone. Come to me, whatever you're thirsting for, and drink from me. I'll satisfy you, and I'll send you into the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful section of John's gospel. We thank you for the urgency of this invitation that Jesus issued to the people on this last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. We are thirsty people, Lord. Every single one of us, we don't want to raise our hand and admit what we're thirsting for because we have to admit that some of the things that we're thirsting for are not altogether godly, but we're thirsting and the wonderful thing about this invitation, O oh Lord, is that you don't say, well, you can only thirst for this, you can only thirst for that. You say, if anyone wants to, and if anyone thirsts for whatever it may be, come to me and find that I alone can quench your thirst. Grant us the grace, Lord, to come to you today, to drink from the well of your salvation daily, that we might become a river that floods this land. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.